0: Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. What if the Trinity we've been taught is not the Trinity of the Bible? In his groundbreaking new book, Dr. Matthew Barrett reveals a shocking discovery. We have manipulated the Trinity, recreating the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our own image. We have distorted the Trinity to justify our countless social agendas. And the result? We have drifted away from the Orthodox Trinity of the Bible. With clarity, creativity, and conviction, Barrett minds the scriptures as well as the creeds and confessions of the faith to help you rediscover the beauty and simplicity of our triune God. Barrett introduces you to the Dream Team, the best of the Church Fathers, who teach us how to interpret the Bible in a way that avoids past and present Trinitarian heresies. You will also be surprised to learn that what you believe about the Trinity has untold consequences for salvation and the Christian life. To truly know God, you must meet the one who is simply Trinity. Matthew Barrett is Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author or editor of numerous books, including None Greater, Canon, Covenant, and Christology, and God's Word Alone. He's also the executive editor of Credo Magazine and the host of the Credo Podcast, hosted uh, right here at Midwestern. And he's with us today to talk about his new book, Simply Trinity, The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit. Dr. Barrett, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, thank you for having me. Are, are you
0: enjoying uh, your summer?
1: You know, I am. My all of my kids are, for the first time ever, are doing swim meet. I'm probably not even using okay. the, the, the best language, but uh, they're, they're swimming. Okay. <laughs> and it's competitive. I had no idea. And so I, I find myself at the swimming pool uh, most afternoons and uh, wow. cheering on. Uh, my son and daughters as they're racing against uh, other kids.
0: <laughs> yeah, so this, is this uh, this is like an independent thing or is this a school thing? What? what how does the swim neighborhood yeah.
1: deal? You know, I had no idea because I, I didn't grow up this way. I grew up playing like baseball and okay. basketball, and yeah. we kind of fell into this. But uh, they're part of a league, and uh, they they have a team, and they <laughs> uh, once a week, have races against other teams it's like a mini olympics really
0: (laughs) okay (laughs) learn new things that's kind of how it was like uh my older daughter did um uh youth theater and that was a brand new world to me i mean obviously i knew theater things existed but um it's a whole little subculture it is the the, the theater world
1: (laughs) it, it really is you know i'm one of those dads out there who thinks you know their kid's going to be the next michael phelps
0: so you go (laughs) well you never know you never know you've done some traveling as well have you not were you recently um out in california you went somewhere i thought i saw
1: Oh, at some point i'm always in california okay Uh, yeah (laughs) right yeah yeah (laughs) no yeah we i have family still in california okay okay I try to make my my way back there when I can.
0: Is this where the affinity for the Hawaiian shirt comes from? It's just like a <laughs> is it is it is it a Rick Warren influence or what's going on there?
1: <laughs> well, uh, listen, uh, you can't you can take you know the Californian to the Midwest and and feed them barbecue and yeah. and that sort of thing, but you, you can't really take the beach out of me. So okay,
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, good. All right. All right hey, so let's talk about um, your new book. I, I want to ask just about the, the, the title concept actually, right? So simply Trinity what what, what do you mean by that Because I think most people would, would would think, gosh, if I'm thinking about what's the most complex or mm-hmm. difficult doctrines to be found in the Christian faith, the Incarnation will be one, virgin birth, that sort of thing but, but certainly the Trinity. Would be um, thought of as very difficult, if not complex, so what's behind the concept of the simple Trinity or simply Trinity in the in the title of the book?:
1: Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked about this because um, you know for listeners as they dig into the book, they'll notice that uh, it's a bit of a of a play on the word simply. Um, uh, it's inviting in that sense. Uh, a bit mysterious because, as we all know, there's there's uh, nothing s- simple about the Trinity. <laughs> it's uh, one of the greatest and deepest mysteries of the Christian faith. Um, but what I'm getting at with that title is actually the other side of the coin, uh, which is to highlight what in theology is called the simplicity of God. Wow. Uh, and though that can be um, a bit of a uh, a foreign term, we don't really use the word that that way, much you know in our common speech. in theology, sim- simplicity is actually crucial uh, to really a biblical and Orthodox understanding of God. It simply means that God is without parts. Uh, he is not unlike us. Uh, we are very divisible. Uh, we change uh, from one day to the next. we're, we're even made up of parts. Uh, God, is totally different than us. Um, when we talk about his attributes, for example, these are not uh, parts that somehow we add up and, and tally up to get God, you know, is that can lead to all kinds of dangers, as if, you know, love is, well, let's put that at 60%, and uh, <laughs> right. uh, holiness, uh, holiness, well, that's just 40%, you know, um, no, God's essence, if we can use that, Uh, Theological term, God's essence is his attributes, and his attributes his essence. Or to put it uh, just very plainly, um, all that is in God is God. And uh, this is actually something that is probably a bit more intuitive to us than than we imagined. Uh, When we read scripture and it says God is love or God is holy, it doesn't merely mean that he possesses. A righteous character. It doesn't merely mean that he acts in a holy way. We're actually saying something far more profound. We're saying this God is love itself. Um, well, that sets him altogether in another category. We can get into this uh, when we talk about the Trinity, but this concept of simplicity is actually crucial to our doctrine of the Trinity, which can feel Uh, counterintuitive because we think, well, isn't there Father and Son and Holy Spirit? But simplicity protects us from thinking of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as just parts of God. Uh, Or, you know, one part being even a greater or a lesser part than another part. And uh, we can talk about that further if you want, but uh, that then means that, well, when we talk about the Trinity, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, they are co-equal with one another, or to use a fancier uh, theological phrase, they are uh, consubstantial with each other.
0: Oh, my word. This doesn't sound simple at all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, it's the book cover, you know, it, it's one of those that it just drags you in and then just hits you over the head.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of that, so the subtitle is The, the Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, how how has the Trinity? I guess in in more popular. Well, you know, I know there's nothing new under the sun. So even some of the the modern revisions, um, even that kind of creep into evangelicalism of trinitarian orthodoxy or orthodox trinitarianism uh, are not really new. But there's just sort of new spins or, or or new you know terminology kind of put on them. What are some of the ways? What are some of the manipulations that you're addressing? uh in the book what are some of the uh you know the ways that we you know can or are tempted to or drift into manipulating the uh the simple trinity
1: yeah well you know i will say two things uh the first thing is in the 20th century we have uh experienced a type of negligence and uh, i experienced this firsthand uh, especially as a young christian um The way that the Trinity is taught is actually uh, very, very different than the way that uh, the Church taught the Trinity for most of history. Uh, What do I mean by that? Well, uh, key doctrines or components of our doctrine of the Trinity uh, over the last several decades, even over the last century, have just gone missing. (laughs) And I know that sounds a bit alarmist, but it's true. or If I can just give uh, one example. Well, we, do, we just talked about one of them. This concept of simplicity uh, was some, is something that in the last century has just been uh, abandoned altogether, uh, which would have been mind-blowing to the church fathers because without it, they had no idea how to actually protect and safeguard uh, the equality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, another example, though, would be this concept that actually maybe your grand, our grandparents are quite familiar with because, because of their older translations, uh, this concept called eternal generation. Uh, or uh, if you think of, say, the Gospel of John, this idea of begetting right. or begottenness. Uh, John loves to use this language. Of course, it's not just John. it's It actually pervades the New Testament in all kinds of other imagery. Uh, But it's this this concept that, well, if uh, Father, Son, and Spirit are one in divinity, one in essence, what is it that distinguishes them? Well, it's almost—terrible pun here, but it's almost too simple to say. Uh, The very uh, names, Father and Son, just to take one example, uh, reveal to us what distinguishes them. This is the Son— who we call Son because he is begotten. He is begotten from the Father. And of course, we then have to qualify and say in a million ways, uh, it's, it's not a begetting like a, a human father and son, and so we have to be very careful there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, it communicates something true, albeit it is a, an, eternal, an eternal begetting of the Son. Well, this, this concept, which is so basic to understand what it means for the Father to be Father and the Son to be Son, was just abandoned. Um, and uh, you can pick up any number of uh, major th- theology uh, popular textbooks. You know, in the if, if we go back, you know, Jared, you'll understand me here. Go back to say the 1990s, <laughs> and uh, or 2000s, and and it's just completely missing, missing, or if it's addressed, it's just criticized. Um, uh, interestingly enough, if you go to like the Nicene Creed, perhaps the most important creed of the Christian faith, it it's everywhere this concept of eternal begetting or generation it's so it's that essential so the first thing i want to say is uh, there is a type of negligence that i think we have to add up to own up to and then the second thing is is and i think you're you're catching on to this there's been what i like to call a trinity drift So yeah, not yeah. just a negligence but a, a drift away from a biblical and orthodox understanding of god and the ways that we've been talking about just now uh, to redefine the Trinity more in terms of what we experience in society. And so rather than some of these um, terms we've been using, like simplicity or eternal generation, those have been jettisoned. And instead, we want to think of the persons more as having relationships, relationships. Um, and we want to think of their unity, not so much in terms of simplicity, but more in terms of, well, a a cooperative effort in which each person, you know, is their own individual. Maybe they have their own will. And like us, uh, they, they cooperate in a type of society. And, oh, guess what? They get along. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this can seem, uh, well... It seems innocent enough. Um, in the 20th century, this type of language just it just becomes pervasive and even starts to creep into evangelicalism in significant ways. But what is, makes it uh, a bit uh, scary is that once you have this what's called a social uh, view of the Trinity in place, it then becomes all too easy and very convenient. To to uh, draw a connect uh, a direct line to society and to start using the Trinity for just about. Every social agenda under the sun, and I really mean that. I tell the story at the start of my book of of how I'm 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 going through uh, this this used bookstore. It's a, you know in California, my kids are on the beach, and Dad's you know escapes away, and <laughs> like I always do, and 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 uh, comes back with a bag of books. And my wife always says, "How in the world are you going to get those on the plane?" <laughs> and anyway, I tell this story, you know, this one trip, and I'm going through this used bookstore. And uh, shelf after shelf, and it and it it just hit me, as I start to realize, okay, here's a generation they're using the Trinity to justify about three, four, five different views of politics. Okay, here's another shelf they're using the Trinity now to justify uh, religious pluralism. Here's another shelf. Oh, they're using the Trinity to be green. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next shelf, which interestingly starts to get into some evangelical authors, they're using the Trinity. From everything from feminism on one side of the spectrum to uh, a compl- complementarianism on the other side of the spectrum, uh, so so gender battles, and I sat back and just thought, "Oh my word, we this is the twentieth century story in a nutshell. We have uh, we have used and dare I say maybe even manipulated the trinity for our social agendas."
0: Yeah. So. That's a good sort of transition to what, where I want to go next, which is you, you share, um, you know, numerous concerns like that through throughout the book. And you're not too shy to to uh, to to name names and, you know, need to name names on the podcast. I don't I don't guess unless you want to. But um, I I wonder about your thoughts on 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 criticism. How do you decide when something is, is uh, you know, worth critiquing? Um, you know, in order to not, you know, uh at the risk of making, you know, you know, making waves or whatever it is. And I wonder if related to that, if you could just touch on um, because I think a lot of our listeners are aware of the EFS, ESS, you know, uh controversy or debate, right? You know, eternal functional subordination or internal subordination of the sun, that idea, but they probably don't, um, a lot of them you know, don't have a grasp of it. What, what does it mean? Uh, what are the implications of it? And 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 then what's wrong with it? And and then I wonder if you could say, this is, you know, kind of a six-part question, I guess. <laughs> is, that, <laughs> it, um, is that outside orthodoxy, right? Like, how should we think of you know, those who promote that view or who, um, you know, advocate for that view or reflect that view as as well? So start with just kind of saying, how do you decide when when to criticize and and or yeah. to critique, I guess I should say to critique and and when not to.
1: Yeah, no, that's a that's a very insightful question uh, because we have to always uh, be careful here, right? I mean, we've all met that person in in church who uh, has their pet issue. Uh, maybe it's you know w- the rapture or you know when when's the millennium or or maybe it's actually something not. Quite as tertiary, maybe it is something a bit uh, more significant doctrinally, um, but but nonetheless not primary, right? And that's where uh, we need to do a bit of uh, triage, if we can use that term, yeah, to discern. Okay, is this is this a primary issue for the Christian faith? Is this a secondary issue, still very important, but but perhaps secondary? Maybe it's not the gospel or the Trinity. Maybe it's it has to do more with okay debates over uh, Christian assurance, for example, Uh, or is it or is it maybe even a a tertiary issue, also important, also important, but nonetheless tertiary? um, Maybe something over say. Different views of church government or perhaps eschatology. Well, I think that's quite critical that we start making those distinctions. Um, When we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, however, all of a sudden the stakes are high because this is a doctrine that uh, is so essential to the Christian faith. In fact, it's so fascinating because if you go back to the fourth century, when you have so many of the church fathers debating with say uh, different types of heresies, or even uh, individuals who were maybe not heretics, but nonetheless very wrong and 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 having a lot of potential to lead the church in, in something that could turn into heresy, uh, they recognize from the very start, if we don't get this right, uh, this could actually the, the survival of, of Christianity as we know it could could actually be a, be compromised, and uh, it became very practical all of a sudden. And they started realizing if we get the Trinity wrong, it's not just the Trinity, but it's our understanding of salvation, it's our understanding of worship. In fact, and for that reason, they were willing to really put their lives on the line, quite literally, in fact, uh, in order to defend uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, all all that being said. Um, when we come to the 21st century, obviously there's a lot more history behind us, but that doesn't necessarily make it uh, take us off the hook, so to speak. It actually gives us quite a bit more accountability now. Um, unlike, you know, if we were living in, say, the 2nd century or the 3rd century or even the 4th century in which some of these uh, battles are, are being defined, we now live in the 20th century in which we, we really have no excuse. Uh, we stand on the sh- on the shoulders uh, of so many who have gone before us and have labored century after century to get it right, and for that reason, it's all the more glaring. If I can be that bold, <laughs> it's all the more glaring that when we come to the, say the the last century, the 20th century, that Trinity drift is is quite real and and quite overt. Um, it's it's not something that uh, is a is a tertiary issue. This is now redefining uh, God Himself, and so in that sense, um, obviously, we want to be um, we want to be respectful in our criticisms, but at the same time, quite serious as well, and and quite bold, uh, knowing what's at stake. Now, all that said, you know, you asked also about how do we address this uh, this new view called EFS? Sometimes it goes by different names, ESS, E-R-A-S, uh, in which has been argued by sometimes prominent uh, evangelicals that the son is subordinate to the father. And by this, they don't just mean, uh, say, they're not just referring, say, to the incarnation. Right. Um, they're not just referring to what, Theologians call the economy of salvation. That is, what is happening, what is God doing in salvation history. Uh, they're actually referring to God apart from the world, in and of Himself. Um, and so that that's where that word eternal gets kind of dropped into the mix. Now, to to clarify, uh, they they are quick to say that they are not Arian. Um, because they're not denying that the Son is equal to the Father in essence, Uh, they then argue that, no, He is equal in essence, but He is subordinate in what they call role. And uh, for the longest time, they rejected the doctrine of eternal generation, and they said instead, well, this this functional type of subordination uh, this is what instead defines the son as son, and uh, a higher supremacy, these are the type of words they used, or authority, or even sometimes they would use the word superiority. Uh, this is what defines the father as father. Now, in, in more um, recent days, they uh, nuanced that a bit when they got pushed back and said, okay, we are going to affirm that the son is begotten from the father. And we we are going to affirm the Nicene Creed now. Uh, but nonetheless, they doubled down and they argued that, well, this is actually quite handy then to support our view, because now <laughs> we can say uh that this subordination flows out of eternal generation. Now, uh, what what are we to to make of all of this? And and I should just add in here, though, this is m- maybe a whole nother rabbit trail. <laughs> uh <laughs> part of the you know really you know if you think of a race you know two two runners you know running and laying side by side the other lane that's kind of running side by side is gender discussions in which they then said well uh the son being subordinate to the father that's what defines the son the son well then uh that that then is the paradigm or or uh model for a woman uh being subordinate to a man whether it's a wife and a husband. But for them, they often went beyond that to say um, uh, church and society as well.
0: Right.
1: That different, That too was very prominent in their thinking. And so this view of the trinity actually became uh, very much um, kind of an apologetic uh, for that type of complementarianism. Now, uh, all that to say, what what do we say in, in response to this? Um, the first thing I, there's so much we could say. And and I actually, I have, uh, the whole book's not, I I have one chapter, chapter eight, towards the the end of the book, which I I say, okay, let's tackle this. And I give a a pretty long chapter getting into the weeds, but also some practical application, uh, towards the end about worship. Uh, If I could just say a few things, um, The first thing I I think we have to recognize is that this understanding of the Trinity, though they will say it's just Bible, (laughs) uh, I would push back on on that and say, actually, whether you realize it or not, it is very much indebted to the redefinition of the Trinity in social terms that was so prominent in the last century. Um, and You see this in all kinds of ways. For example, uh, the Trinity is—they will use language like the Trinity is—is a a society or community. Sometimes even analogous to a human society. Um, Persons are are not defined so much in those traditional terms, but more as relationships. um, More in terms of functionality. Um, There's even questions, uh, many questions about well have you have you collapsed uh, have you collapsed who God is in in himself with how God acts in history? and that too was a very uh typical move in the last century in which uh, there was a, a bit of a conflation uh, between those, which can be quite dangerous um, in the twentieth century, you had um, certain liberal theologians who then would look at suffering during the Incarnation, for example, mm. and they would project that back onto God in eternity <clears throat> in and of himself. Interestingly enough, EFS does something similar. They take maybe a type of submission in the Incarnation by means of the humanity of Christ, and they project that back onto uh, God in and of himself, in this case, that father and son relationship. Um, I could go on. Well, and another another mark would be uh, using then this social definition as as really your paradigm then for, say, in this case, gender discussions. The list goes on. And so what's, I think, so important to say is let's just be honest. Um, This is not just Bible. Uh, This is actually quite indebted and quite novel to to the last century. Um, And then the second thing I think, Maybe, maybe two things. Uh, since you had a six-part question, <laughs> <laughs> keep
0: going. Uh, it was an it was an unsimple question. So <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's
1: right. <laughs> uh, uh, two 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 other things. I, I guess I would say one is you, you have to bear with me for a second. One is uber theological, okay. uh, and, and listeners can go to the book for this one. And then the other one, <clears> hold, <throat> hold, hold on with me, because the other one is actually quite practical and and actually gets to. Our understanding of, of salvation in the gospel. So the, the uber-theological issue. Um, when you go back to uh, the early church period and uh, the fathers who who really, you know, bled, so to speak, uh, for the doctrine of the Trinity, you'll notice they introduced whole vocabulary, and they argued that, um, well, when they argued that the Son is equal with the Father, they use that word homoousios uh, to, to say he's of the same nature as the Father. But uh, what sometimes is missed is, is why. Why did, they, why did they do that exactly? Um, for them, they were actually arguing something quite specific. They were saying, this son that we are talking about from all eternity, this son is begotten from the Father's very essence. And for that reason, he is one in nature, one in will, one in glory, one in power. And, and the list just went on and on and on. And uh a fancy way that they, they said this is they said, uh, the son is uh a subsistence of the same divine essence as the father. Now, why do I mention this, you know, very uh you know, theologically-minded discussion. Well, I mention this because when we come to EFS today, uh, you can't create this very neat, tidy, uh, handy divide between, say, a son who is equal with his father in essence but subordinate in role. Um, To be son is to be from the father's essence. Uh, or to to use that fancier theological language, is to be a subsistence of the divine essence itself. Uh, And if that's the case, then um, as soon as you introduce some type of lesser anything, lesser glory, lesser power, lesser authority, you know, the list just goes on. As soon as you introduce that uh, into the sun, um, there's no way to keep that from just littering divinity itself uh in other words to put this very plainly in our own minds we might like to say oh you've got the sun over here and you got the divine essence over here that's that's divinity okay he's equal that way oh and the sun's over here that's something separate uh and and he can be subordinate over here that's not how the trinity works (laughs) as much as we might like to make those dichotomies no this is the sun uh and this is why eternal generation was so important because it simultaneously safeguarded equality but then also distinguished the son so we can say uh, he's distinct as the son who is begotten from his father and yet because he's begotten from the father's essence he is equal um he is one with the father in nature will power authority etc now the the second more practical thing has to do with salvation in the gospel itself uh, and really it has, you know, unlimited implications for worship and prayer and, and so much more. And that's this. Um, when we look at, say, a Philippians 2, or uh, maybe we go to a book like Hebrews, what do we find? I think what we find there is that for these biblical authors, the Son, the incarnation uh, is is so unthinkable. It's so amazing. It's so radical. It's so extraordinary. It's so scandalous. Why? Because the son humbling himself, becoming, taking on the form of a servant, learning obedience to the point of death. This is not something the son does anyways. Uh, in other words, this isn't just like, uh, oh, this is, this is the son's subordinate. In of himself, apart from creation, and we just kind of continue that on. Now that we have Earth and the cross, and so. no, uh, the whole point is that this humility seems so contrary to what we know about God. That's what makes it so amazing. And if that's the case, then actually, uh, when we talk about something like EFS, we have to say uh, we think we're we're you're compromising uh, the scandalous nature of the Incarnation itself. Uh, And if that's the case, then that actually changes then the way we think of everything from what it means for Christ to humble himself to uh, what it means then for everything from our salvation to our worship on a Sunday morning.
0: Brother, give us um, some sort of encouragement for the pastor or even, you know, mature lay leader uh, so many who listen to the podcast, they're hearing all this, you know, this is really interesting. Uh, I think it's even important. This is very important. You, you've convinced me this is, you know, vital to Christian doctrine, that sort of thing. But I, I don't understand, you know, like, how would this impact just my everyday ministry or, yeah. um, you know, what's the the importance of the book or, or what would be the application? How would it help pastors and and ministry leaders, do you think? Or how should it, I guess?
1: Yeah. Oh, there's so many, so many good ways. Um, and i I think one of the the great things about writing this book was it, it's not just getting into the deep things of God, but it also gives us an opportunity to say, okay, if 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 this is, if this is who God is, then then what are the implications? What are the many implications for everything from salvation to pastoral ministry to to my own personal, uh, prayer life. Uh, all that said, uh, let me let me just mention two of them if I can, though there's so many more. Uh, you know, we've been talking about this idea of eternal generation. Isn't it so fascinating? Now you think of John chapter one, for example, isn't it so fascinating that that John he really wants to get to the gospel, right? Uh, the second half of John one, John John one fourteen, John one eighteen, and 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 then in chapter three, of course, you know this famous passage. Uh, he he's going to get there, but in order to in order for us to understand the significance, even the qualifications for this Jesus to save us, John thinks I need to first establish who this Jesus is. Uh, Otherwise, everything I'm going to talk about in salvation has no basis. And so John gets metaphysical. <laughs> He's going to say, This is really foreign to us today. We're not used to talking this way. He's going to say, Let me introduce you to the word. Uh, this is the word who was with God. This is the word who was God. And uh, this is John's, this is another way of, of, of John describing this doctrine of eternal generation to say, uh, this is the word who is equal to the Father, because this is the word who is from the Father from all eternity. And on the on that basis, John then can say, okay, now let's talk about your salvation. If this is who he is, if, if he really is uh, consubstantial with the Father, then not only can he save you, not only can he redeem you, but he deserves your worship. Now, the second thing I want to mention. So, so all of this, it, it, as technical as it sounds, and I know it can be technical, it's essential for grounding what we want to say in the gospel. And and, and in that sense, the Trinity uh, is, is so crucial, so crucial to get right, so that we can actually get to the that those words of good news. Mm-hmm. Now, the second thing I want to say is actually quite practical in terms of you know listeners out there. As individuals, but then also as a church, um, when you 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 may know more about the Trinity than you think, uh, and I say that because I realize some of these things can be intimidating. Um, maybe you may or may not have theological training. Don't let that keep you from these the deep things of God. Um, why is it that you may know more about this Trinity than you think? Well, think about. And I, and I talk about this in the book, my own conversion. I think about your own conversion. Uh, how how is it that you came to know Christ? Well, the Holy Spirit worked within you. Uh, the Holy Spirit regenerated you, gave you new spiritual life, caused you to be born again, right? Uh, and and opened your eyes to Jesus Christ, brought you into Union with Christ so that you enjoy all the benefits of that union with Him. One being that you then can approach, you can approach the Father and receive all of the grace and the mercy that He has planned for you in His Son. Well, if you think of your conversion that way and through that Trinitarian lens, That actually assumes everything we've talked about. So why is it? Why is it that the Holy Spirit is sent at Pentecost and then sent to indwell you as a Christian? Well, the only reason the Holy Spirit can do that in you is because this is the same Spirit who proceeded from the Father and the Son, but from all eternity. Why is it that Jesus Christ can Live and die and rise for you. It's because this is the same Son, this, this Son who's sent by the Father for the sake of your redemption. This is the same Son who, pros- who who is begotten from the Father from all eternity. So all that to say, and we could go on, but all that to say, um, whether it's your conversion or perhaps when you pray, the Holy Spirit is is working in that same way when you pray to to bring you uh, your your refocus your mind on on who mm-hmm. Jesus is so that you receive the grace from God. What when you think of your conversion or your prayer life that way, you are ascending this trinitarian ladder so to speak, but it assumes that well, this trinity uh, descended to you in the first place. Uh, so all that to say who God is in and of himself apart from you is so crucial to get right. Otherwise, we may not understand, at least in its fullness, what God has done, what this Trinitarian God has done for you in salvation history.
0: You know, in a, in a way, this is um, exhilarating, dizzying. <laughs> which I think, <laughs> which I think is good for worship. It's good for staggering at at the at the you know the awesomeness and and uh, the glory of God. And what a great uh, note to end on Brother. Thanks so much for coming on the for the Church podcast. Hi, hey, Thanks for having
1: me. Always fun.
0: Yeah. And listener, if you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite programs. Leave us a good review if you don't mind. Five stars would be preferable. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church Podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.